welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. So we're getting closer to the end of the year where people start getting reflective about all that's happened in 2023. Big picture, of course, there was a lot of stuff that happened here in New Mexico, also worldwide, but here at KRQE, where Gabby and I work, there's also been a lot of changes over the last year. One thing that stayed pretty consistent over several years now is part of our team that brings you the news on KRQE News 13 at 5.30 and at 10. Our primetime anchor team, Dean Staley and Jessica Garate, are joining us for this week's podcast ahead of their nightside shifts, which for those of you listening, that starts with a 1.30 afternoon news meeting. So we'll try and wrap up by then. Thank you both for joining us. Really nice to be here. Huge pleasure being here. Huge fan of the podcast, and I oh, really yay. enjoy listening to both of you. Thank you, guys. Uh, Dean, I want to start with you. You're an Albuquerque native, but prior to your broadcast career here, you also spent a lot of years in other places, including two years in the Peace Corps. You worked at King 5 in Seattle, and you also worked in Minneapolis at a TV station there. First question, prior to your current position, and I know I didn't get all of your stations <laughs> here as well, but prior to your current position, what do you look back on that you think was your most formative experience in news and, and ultimately what called you back to Albuquerque? Oh, wow. That's a big question. I mean, you always have stories that you remember, right? So I've, I've been at this 30 some years now. And so you remember a handful of stories that were like, you know, either you're really proud of how they came together and, and, and what you communicated to the viewers or they just struck you for whatever reason. But I think the most formative period, I was working in Tampa for the ABC station, and we were a group of reporters who had all been hired. It was it was during the period of startups, like in 95. So it was an ABC startup. So all these, there's like 100 people had been hired by the same news director. And that's a really rare thing in this business for people who don't know. You always have, you know, news directors come and go and, and personnel come and go, but, but to have one place just start from zero with 100 new people. So there was a certain energy. People had been doing it I think by that point, I'd had four or five years in the business. And so you're getting uh, sort of competent, I would say. <laughs> you're not a great reporter yet, but you, you're really sort of, which is true of most things, right? It takes six or seven years to get good at something. And, and then we had the tools. We had, you know, a lot of energy and we had some great, you know, we had a brand new station and brand new equipment and a lot of energy. So that was a really formative part of, I think, my career. I spent three years there and then I went on to work for ABC News for a couple of years. That was sort of a different perspective on how this job is done, because you're covering national stories and you're, you're not nearly as close to the story as you are when you work in local. So I think there was that period, there was a three periods in Tampa and then the couple of years that came after that were really fascinating. And then a couple of years after that, I went to Minneapolis for four or five years. And that was just an amazing shop in terms of photojournalism and sort of a, a culture of, of storytelling. So there was a period after I sort of no longer sucked, I think is the, is the <laughs> clinical term. Yeah, you could say as that As a reporter, here. yeah, yeah, I, you know, that I sort of became competent at the job and then you just sort of feed off the people around you who are good and, and, and really interested in telling good stories and, and getting to the bottom of different stories and topics. So yeah, that was a, a really wonderful you know, part of my career. Starting a news station as well, I think that's so interesting because to your point, you're starting with a group of people all at the very same time. Everybody has their history from maybe other places, but nobody has history there together. And you really have a chance to kind of set a new chapter of how we cover news and just really exciting. I, I worked at a station as well. That was a startup in 2007 and I can 
relate to a lot of that. Yeah. And you don't have leftover sort of rules and different ways of doing things that are just sort of an aggregate of different administrations. I mean, you have everyone sort of on the same page. So that was, yeah, really interesting. What called you back to New Mexico? You know, I got so lucky and I don't know how many people know this story, but I was working in Seattle at a great job. I'd been anchoring in Seattle and loved it. And my soon-to-be wife was out there with me and Bill Anderson, the general manager here called me and said, Hey, this guy named Dick Niffing is retiring from our station and we're looking for someone to replace him. And we think you might be the guy. And I had like, he didn't know I was from Albuquerque. Like he thought he, he just, he thought I was some Seattle anchor that he had gone, you know, he had seen from one of these, uh, I think it was talent dynamics in Dallas that, oh, wow. you know, that keeps everyone's information. And so he'd seen my reel and he called me not knowing I was from here. So, and I was sort of drop jawed, like, I'm sorry, Dick Niffing, the, the Dick Niffing is retiring. You know, so it was, and, and the rest was just a question of, I mean, would they have me? <laughs> and if they would, you know, a, a talk with, with my wife, Terry, about can we do this, you know, uproot from Seattle and, and come back to New Mexico. But the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, I mean, just a great job and, and stumbling into a great operation, which, as you guys know, you don't always get the choice of, right? You get, you get hired to a place and you hope it's, you know, has sort of all of the, the culture and the, the, the ideas about journalism that you'd like to work with, right? And you, you don't always get to decide that if you're not the news director. So really lucky to land here. There is always infinitely so much you don't know about the place you're going to work until you're actually working there, yeah. no matter how much you talk to people. The first reporting job I took was in Roswell, sight unseen, had never visited Roswell. And I was encouraged by my now husband, then boyfriend to just like take the leap and go and yeah, I'm super glad that I did, but not sure, you know, had it not been for this unique business, I ever would have moved to Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> um, yeah. No offense to the lovely people of Roswell, love it there. But yeah, it just wasn't like, you know, on my list of when I graduated, like, oh, I would love to move there. Yeah. But particularly, I think it's just moving to those kind of more rural, small towns is always for somebody who is in their early 20s, it's hard to imagine doing because I had that same experience too when I moved to Roseburg, Oregon. Same thing. It was just a place I had never thought I would ever live. <laughs> live and that's where yeah. I started reporting. So but very formative. You got me thinking, yeah, that is super formative for myself. But Jess, you as well, you grew up in West Texas and Wyoming. You worked in radio before transitioning into broadcast television and ultimately moving to New Mexico. Similar question, though, what do you look back on in life or career wise that you think was the most formative experience for you? Uh, probably there's there's two. And, and I've been very fortunate. Indeed, I'm, I'm so glad you did make that jump and come here because it's been, you know, that's one of the reasons that I love working here and along with uh, journalists like Gabby and Chris. So we really it was a huge, great thing for our newsroom and has been. And I enjoy sitting by all of you in the newsroom every day. Hey, well, thank you. So we enjoy you as well. <laughs> well it's, it's, it's a great team. And, and that's what's kept me here so long. It'll be 20 years in May. And it was one of those things. There's, there's two things in my career that really stand out to me. One was my first job. I was in Casper, Wyoming, and I really just lucked out. I knew I'd interned at one of the stations during college. And so the news director gave me a, a chance and I was terrible. I was so awful there. And I was working <laughs> these like crazy hours. I was their weekend anchor. I was their weekend meteorologist, which I, or, uh, not meteorologist. Let me say weather person, weekend gotcha. weather gotcha. person. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So right. I had to do weather on the weekends. I was terrible. I'd never done it before. And then I was their only reporter on the weekend. So I was working insane hours and this business could be really brutal on you. I mean, you're working crazy hours. You're making nothing. You know, starting out at all of $18,000 and you're just grinding all day long. And so 
I finally had had it one day and I called my dad. I've been working like 14 hours and he's like, there's no crying in journalism. Just <laughs> as you guys know, he wow. switched that line yeah. a little yeah. bit. Right. No and crying. I, he's <laughs> like, you're using them like they're using you. You're going to move on and, and find something. And so every, every time I got promoted, every time, you know, when I got the 10 o'clock here, which was such a, a huge deal for me to, to anchor with Dick Niffing. My dad reminds me of that day when I completely broke down. <laughs> you know? And then the second was, was being able to work with Larry Barker and Dick Niffing. Uh, it really kept me here. I love the way KRQE does news. You know, I came here, I, I went from Casper, Wyoming to Midland, Texas, worked at a station there, applied everywhere. I had some offers in Austin, Texas and Virginia and Albuquerque. And, and I came here and I really didn't know which way I was going to go. I, I really thought I was going to go to Austin because that was the cool hit place at the time. And I got here and I met at the time the news director and Dick Niffing and Larry Barker and and watched their news and the way they did news and everybody knew them. And I just loved that culture and what they they did here and, and what they do. And so that was a big turning point. And, and that's what's kept me here so long. I, you know, I've really, I really feel like we have so many passionate journalists in our newsroom and love what they do every day. And, and are really in it because their hearts are in it. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, I was thinking back to the first days I came here and just intimidation was probably the one word that comes to mind. And, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that, you know, these are really serious news people and like, yes. <laughs> I just wasn't totally used to that, to be honest, you know, coming from a smaller market, I came from uh, Eugene, Oregon, you know, where we would, it's just a different, it's a different culture, different vibe there. And, you know, oftentimes we were leading newscasts with stuff like, Hey, check out the new duck jerseys, you know, or the new t-shirts that fans are wearing. And that was what was happening in the market. It just was a different kind of news place. And yeah, so when I got here, I definitely agree, like seeing a lot of the people who had been here and how serious people were about news. And you really could not just, you know, go out, get your interviews and put together your story everybody wanted to be involved in the mix. And, and that ultimately I think makes for some really great journalism here that serves New Mexico. Yeah, And you felt the way they cared about it. You just felt it in I the newsroom. Think, you know, when I explained to people our newsroom, cause it is different that, that so much thought goes into the stories we're going to put on every night and how we're going to execute them. And I, I, I love that part. I love that part of being a part of that one and that it is really we really do demand a lot of our reporters and coming in with stories and working stories and, and then how we'll carry them out that day. So, yeah. So we wanted to do something a little different for this episode and we're not going in with just one particular topic as you probably could tell, but we want to let our listeners get to know you two just a little bit more in what you do besides reporting news on TV. So Dean, We'll start again here with you. <laughs> How do you describe your role in the newsroom today, though? And and what are some of the biggest changes that you have seen from what newsrooms used to be like in your career, you think? I feel like a reporter. I feel like there's this idea that anchors are somehow separate. And I just don't believe that's true. Anyone who knew Dick Niffing and knows Dick Niffing, we still get together, Jess and I, when we can with him. I mean, he's a hardcore reporter and he'd been a, a main anchor for decades, right? 70 years on the air. But in his heart, he was a reporter. So I feel like I'm just another reporter in the newsroom. That's the job. The currency of the newsroom, as, as we all know, are story ideas, pitches, right? That's the currency. And if you don't have any, you're broke, right? So 
And where do those come from? They should come from reporters. And if they're coming from anchors, guess what? Those are just anchors being reporters, right? So we're all reporters at that level. And I feel like that's my, that's my role. I, I feel like maybe there's a little more mentoring and a little more trying to bring younger reporters along than I remember ever before. And maybe that's because we're getting, you know, some reporters with less experience. So that's certainly part of it. But, that, you know, at the end of the day, I really just feel like a, a kind of a glorified reporter. And I, and I still love reporting. I mean, that's, I think that, you know, I, I never really aspired to be an anchor. I always wanted to be a reporter. So I just sort of fell into this from that. In the changes that you've seen, I mean, you, you hit on one of those there. You know, sometimes we're seeing sort of a change in dynamic of just people who work here. I think if we all looked back at news air checks in the 90s, you'd probably see a lot of people who did look a little bit older than maybe some of the people that we have moving through newsrooms. So I think age is certainly something our viewers notice, but you know, that does not speak to acumen always. It does not always speak to just how capable people are as well. We have some of the brightest young people that are there. What are the things that though, that you think you have seen change in newsrooms throughout your career? Part of it has been a fading, and there's no way around this. There's been a fading of the dominance of TV news. You know, I mean, TV news used to be such a dominant medium. And I think we're finally at a place, you know, at one, at one point, I don't know if you guys remember this, this was maybe around 2000 or somewhere in there where cable overtook broadcast in terms of eyeballs, right? More people watching cable than, than watching the big three broadcasters. And so that was a tipping point. I think we finally gotten to the point where you know, social media is, a, you know, a powerful outlet for information. And I think we sort of have, have settled into a place where our audiences aren't nearly as large as they were 20 years ago. But I'm actually heartened by the fact that I think they're still, the, the people who watch us and the people who pay attention to our product and, and other newscasts in the market really care about news. I just think, you know, and, and you feel that, Justin and I talk about this all the time, you run into people in the you know, in the grocery store and they'll tell you about a story. Oh, they'll tell I watch you every night. And you can tell these are people who are connected to their community, who care about the schools, who care about the police department, who care about, you know, all of the systems that keep this place running. They have a real, you can just tell they have a real vested interest in that and, and they're watching. So I think that's been a shift. It's smaller, but that, that core has, has never gone away. In recent years, you know, we used to see you both on the anchor desk more often together, but as I'm sure Viewers have noticed after Kim Baez, who used to anchor our 4 p.m. show for a long time after she left, you've both sort of tag teamed, you know, that four o'clock show. And then Jess, how do you describe your role in the newsroom now and how has that changed over the years? It has changed. Um, unfortunately, we lost so much experience and we saw it really makes me sad. We saw a lot of moms leaving to, you know, after COVID, I think a lot of positions you saw that where you have a little bit more flexibility and working from home. And so we did see that happen with Brittany and Kim and Crystal and, and Crystal and, and, um, and three so, giants, really, really yeah. great three people. Jo yeah. giants in Amazing our newsroom. Journos. And, yes. And, and so we really, my anchoring has really picked up more. Not that I wasn't anchoring before, but now Dean and I are shifting through the four and the five thirty, where I used to report, I'd anchor my shows and still report a lot. And I still do report. Um, it's just a little bit more, a little tougher now because we're, we're yeah. picking up some of the shows and trying to juggle that. I love anchoring. I'm kind of like Dean. I, you know, I, you would have told me 20 years ago, I thought I'd be in Denver being a reporter. I really lucked out and I really was so lucky that I was able to work my way up and be the evening anchor here. And, and I still get a report and that that's a huge role for me. I spend most of my mornings I, this morning, I'm making calls, trying to find stories for us and, and bugging people, but I, I love it. And, it, and to me, 
you know, I'm working on a story down south that's going to have a huge impact on southern New Mexico. And so that it's important to share those stories. And it's not Albuquerque, it's everywhere. It's our entire state. And so I really like my role is also trying to find those stories and and help our younger reporters figuring out, you know, who we should be calling, how we should be covering it, what kind of video we need, who we should be interviewing. And we have the benefit of being here so much longer that we know so many people. And, and so we can, we can contact them and we can connect our reporters with who they need to be speaking with. So I feel like that that's a role. And, and then also just, I really do like mentoring and I, I do enjoy, you know, I was very fortunate going through the ranks that I had a Dick Niffing and it, that pulled me aside and said, Hey, you're writing, you know, you need to work <laughs> on this, you need to work on this anchoring. And I'm so grateful for that. And so I hope that we can help others too and, and growing in their careers. Yeah, I think a lot of probably industries and businesses can relate to doing more with less these days. Yes. And that's kind of where we're at in a sense. It it definitely is. And and I think for a while there I thought it was just TV, but I think looking at everywhere, it's just I think the pandemic really changed a lot of ways. But I thought our newsrooms were heading that way too. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping that we could sell the rumor that Jess and Dean just won't work together. And that's why they're doing, <laughs> that's why you'll see her on the four by herself yeah. and him on the five thirty, or vice versa. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know. That's a tough sell. And then by 10 o'clock, you guys. Yeah. We've worked it out by 10. Okay. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that I actually like, I'd much prefer a co-anchor. It's just, it's so much fun. And it's really fun sitting next to Dean every night. Like I, we, we bring different things to the table and, and I, I know I can pick his brain about anything and I love that. So yeah, we had a great team between Grant and Jess and I mean, Van, Van just Tate a great is, team. Yeah. yeah. For the listeners or viewers who've watched and, you know, who are listening now, they look like nice people on the news, but they really are just good people. Depends on the day. <laughs> a little biased, Depends right? on the day for me. I would say that. We, we all There's have a that. caveat. There's a caveat. Ask my kids. <laughs> So I want to talk to you both about some of the work that you have done here in New Mexico. Dean, you worked in our special assignment unit before you went to full-time anchoring here. We've also had you on the podcast here before talking about the special series that you did reporting about the legalization of recreational cannabis in New Mexico and comparing it to some of the challenges Colorado has seen. But do you have a story or reporting project that maybe sticks out to you or has made an impact on you as a journalist? Well, let me, if I may, let me speak to that, the pot spot, because we did a whole half hour on that. We, I went up to Denver and spent a couple of days and talked to a district attorney up there, a sheriff, talked to the head of harm reduction for Denver Public Schools, and came back with really this notion that there was Armageddon coming. And there was some really dark notions, especially from the prosecutor up there, who was predicting really a lot of trouble. And, and he'd seen it in Denver, for sure. So these weren't people who were making up stories. These were people who had a lived experience of having pot become legal in Denver and all of the problems that came with it. And the two biggest were, were, I think, violent crime, where you had people, because it's a cash business, you had armed robberies all the time and the shootings that come from that. And then people setting up drug deals and, and shooting each other over pot that was you know, from a grow house. They also had a massive number of grow houses. And I would say that, that a lot of that doesn't seem to have come to pass here in New Mexico. And I'm so happy about that, you know, to have been wrong or to have these people, to have their experience not translate to New Mexico. And I would say, you know, there's no organization that sits back and sort of measures this and can tell you why. But I think New Mexico was lucky that we came in much later in the game. People have to remember that Colorado was one of the very first, I think, with Washington State to make pot legal. So I think they suffered a disproportionate amount of, oh, well, we'll just go set up grow houses in the Denver area. And that's what people did. They, you know, they'd rent the biggest house they could for cash 
and turn it into an absolute grow house. So they they had and they had real organized crime behind that. So Denver had a massive issues with that. And, and it, they didn't manifest here in the same way. And I think we're just lucky that, that pot is legal in more places at the same time now. And there's not that pressure where, oh, you've got to go to New Mexico to grow your pot. It might also have, to do, have something to do with our water resources too, which it's a little harder here to get away with just using water for that. I do think the, the one thing I'm concerned about, and this came from the, the head of Denver Public Schools, harm reduction. She was warning about the fact that pot really is dangerous to younger people whose, whose brains aren't fully developed. And that the level of, of THC in the pot that is, is in this latest stuff is really, you know, it's concentrated. It's, so she's really concerned that down the road, we're going to see problems and you're going to see trouble from people who are either addicted in their own psychological way to marijuana or having some real brain changes because they started smoking so soon. So I'm still concerned that some, you know, we're not out of the woods yet by any means, but I, I am heartened that some of the worst things that we were hearing out of Denver did not come to pass. I know that was a big reporting project that you did too. Is there other any other stories that kind of stick out to you that you've worked on here in New Mexico? You know, I've been doing this long enough. I was thinking about this. I don't think there's a single story, but you know, I've been doing this more than 30 years now. And I think one of the benefits of that is the same stories come around. And over time you begin to say, okay, how do we how do we solve homelessness? Right? How do we solve, and I know, Gabby, you've been heavily involved in reporting on this. How do you solve mental health and, and the people who are suffering horrible mental health crises who are also contributing massive problems to the community, right? And I'm talking about the person who's having, a person who's having an episode in front of the Frontier restaurant and throwing rocks at people, right? Mm. And there's no great answer, as we know, for that. We, we've moved out of the Reagan era where we sort of emptied all of the, you know, this sort of insane asylum model of treating mental health to zero, to nothing, right? So I think, I think there's a massive gap right now. And, and I'm hopeful that we're, we're going to figure out a way to fix this. But clearly, there's not enough help for those people. You don't want to just throw them in jail. It doesn't help them. It's not helpful to any, you know, you don't want to just warehouse people. But we don't really have the, the capacity right now, I don't think, the facility to take care of these people. So that's one of those stories that because we cover it every week or every other week, I mean, these stories come up all the time that you begin to sort of have a different perspective on, oh, no, this is an ongoing thing that, that we need to solve. Yeah. That, that and homelessness, which are, are by the way, not unrelated, right? For you sure. Have, you have homeless people too suffering mental health crises. So, big yeah, questions. Yeah. yeah, big, massive questions that no one absolutely has the answer to. I'm always curious. I'm reading, you know, the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Anytime I, oh, Houston has had some success with homelessness. So you're like, okay, what are they doing? So, I'm, I'm, I'm massively interested and curious about seeing where fixes are working elsewhere. Yeah. I think all of us are curious by nature, which is probably why we're all sitting here that's today. Gig, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's true. So there's not a single story on my part, just, you know, but there are issues that I think over time have, are taking up more of my space in my brain for like, I just wish we could get to the bottom of this, you know? Yes, for sure. And Jess, you've done a lot of reporting on the state's Children, Youth, and Families Department, that's CYFD, problems with cases involving children. One that sticks out is definitely the case of four-year-old James Dunkley. The details of that case are really disturbing, so a warning to listeners, it does involve child abuse, but cases where the safety of children are in jeopardy are so difficult to report on because of the children's code and privacy laws but also people in charge of handling those cases are not always forthcoming, right? Jess, can you tell us first how you heard about that story and why you felt it was important to shine a light on? You know, that one was, it happened at night and we got the call and we were trying to figure out what was going on and trying to get to the bottom of it. And unfortunately, it's just one of those calls we get way too many times here that 
you know, a child has been killed and, and, and then trying to figure out like, how did, how did we get here? And over and over and over again, we're trying to get answers and we couldn't because of the children's code, because we're blocked. I will tell you, this case was really ex- extremely disturbing because we knew they had had CYFD had contact with them over and over and police. And you have a little boy who's told doctors the horrific things were happening to him and doctors, police, CYFD. And he still ends up back with his mom and a month later he's dead. And then how, and trying to figure out who's making these decisions and why. And so I started putting in public records requests, many of them. And this was three years ago. I'm still fighting for them. So I spent a lot of my time doing this as well as just trying to get to the bottom of things and trying to find records and, and, and trying to see what happened. And so I put in, you know, Rio Rancho police had dealt with them. Sandoval County deputies, they immediately denied my request for records. APD, I'm still waiting on. It's been three years. I have, I have reported them to the attorney general's office because I'm tired of waiting. Uh, and, and they're breaking state law by doing this. And so I just have to keep fighting for them. I was able to obtain some of the records through an attorney. And that's because the man who beat him to death was prosecuted. And so during that prosecution, the attorney was able to get some of the records who's, and that attorney's even fighting for these records to get to the bottom of it. And in that, they also learned that the CYFD worker had been saying, hey, this kid should not be placed back with his mother. You not, should not, this is a dangerous situation for him. The state kept putting him back. And so when that, when he died, the worker quit and they confiscated all of her documents in this case. And now attorneys are alleging that that's all been destroyed. They haven't been able to get those documents. So I've been working on that piece of the story as well. And so you just see this, we're just failing our children and it's really sad to me. And so I really feel like one thing that we can do as journalists is we're the people that can get this, this out there and show people, this is how this is happening. Because before, I mean, before this case, this is the first time I'd seen lapel video of a little boy. He was in the urgent care and, and he's telling his story and, and we need to understand why they're making these decisions. And I'm kind of like, Dean, I've looked at, you know, how did we get here? And there is a philosophy that our state has is that the best place for these children is to be with their biological parents. It's more trauma to take them out, no matter what's happening in that home. And so, and that was like a nationwide, you saw this sweep across the nation, we followed. And so now we're seeing cases like this, where is that really, you know, is that true for every case? And so how do we come up with solutions? And I think we'll see, you know, we see in the legislature, a lot of bills where they're trying to push and, and trying to fix CYFD and, and trying different things. I think we'll see that again this year too. Yeah, definitely something lawmakers are looking at as well. If I may, if anyone hasn't seen Jess's reporting on this, please look it up, the Dunkley case. This is just amazing reporting. But I also want to point out, and this is one of the reasons I love working with Jess, no one pulled Jess aside and said, hey, we want you to get on this Dunkley story. We want you to follow this. Or, hey, I want you to keep on CYFD. And fit. Jess just has this tenacity about her that, no, I want the answer, and I want to know what happened, and you're going to tell me. And if you won't tell me, I will ask for more public records, and we're going to get to the bottom of this eventually. And as you can hear, we're st- I mean, she's still in the process of this, but that is not, that's not motivated externally. That's not someone, that's not the bosses saying, hey, I got a project for you. That's, um, that's just a journo chasing a story, which is really, you know, I'm lucky to be working with people like this. Yeah, you're heartened to see it, the passion that people have in this building to follow those stories because they know this isn't right. And it doesn't happen otherwise because we have other stories to get on. We've got a newscast the next day and the next, I mean, you know, there's not this huge pause where you just sort of sit back and, okay, what would I like to chase? I mean, you're still doing what you can to fill the next newscast and to handle other stories. So, And on that note too, thank you, Dean. And I think there's 
so much wonderful things going on in our state. I love being able to report on all the wonderful. We live in an amazing state. I love living in Albuquerque. There are some issues, though, that need to be fixed and looked at. And that's why we're here and, and, and making sure that we're doing all we can to expose that. To the point Dean was making earlier, we will include a link to Jess's stories that we're mentioning and, and some of the, the work that Dean mentioned as well about cannabis. We'll put that in our show notes here. Jessica, after that story, what kind of feedback did you receive either from CYFD or lawmakers, the attorneys handling the case? The, the attorneys handling the case are amazing. Sarah Kreka, she is going after the state and, and she's really put a voice for these children. Like she's really given these children a voice. And, and so we need people like her and it's kind of a tag team trying to just get records and try to help each other figure out these cases. CYFD doesn't talk to us. Uh, That's their policy. They don't talk about cases. It's, you know, I reach out as a courtesy every time and it's, you know, we can't talk about ongoing cases, but we take these cases seriously. It's a blanket statement. And I understand, you know, that we, we do have laws protecting children too on their end. And so that is one thing that we need to look at. And I did really work with the prior administration when I met with the CYFD secretary. When there was a death, they did look up and try to figure out how can we get some sort of report detailing our role in the situation? Because sometimes they're like, hey, it wasn't, yeah, we had contact, but it wasn't as bad as, it, you know, and this is why we made this decision. So on their end too, they want to be able to explain their decisions sometimes. And so so that is a work in progress. And, and that was a, a lot of the feedback. But I do think for the first time, just putting a face to to these cases, we hear the names, we see them, we see pictures of, of some of the, the high profile deaths we have seen with children, but actually hearing him talk and seeing him in an ER room was just really chilling and, and knowing that anyone at that time could have saved him. Heartbreaking. It's, it's hard. I want to shift gears just a little bit. There's more I want to talk to you both about. You also both play a big role in election night reporting and coverage. And it's usually, as we know, all hands on deck for some of these major elections. We're heading into another presidential election year and things are pretty tense politically, not just in the U.S., but globally. Also, the public perception of the media and how trusted journalists are has certainly shifted over the last few years. Dean, let's ask you first, how do you approach a big election night of coverage? And what do you say to viewers and listeners who think, oh, he must be on the side of so-and-so. Well, the, the way I approach it, and I've seen Jess approach it this way too, is you just study as hard as you can. I mean, you read as much as you can. You're in touch with candidates as much as you can be to try to feel them out about policies or ideas or you know what they think about this or that. So there's a ton of work that goes into getting ready. And I'm always astonished at the end of the night on election night, how how small a fraction of what you learned actually got on the air. So Jess and I generally are prepared for almost everything, you know, almost anything with every single race. It's like studying for a big test. Yeah. yeah and they only ask you one question, yeah. right? I mean, that's what often what happens, but that's the game, right? I mean, you, you have to really know this stuff. So we work really hard to do that. In terms of bias, I think, you know, I'm a journo. So if someone, I'm interested in telling our viewers what I think is compelling and if that's a politician we caught lying about their resume, if this is a George Santos sort of thing, that is a really juicy story as a journal. And I don't care if he's a Dem or a Republican, right? I just am interested in like, can you believe? And and trust me, as we all know, there's plenty of that on both sides of the aisle, right? And in, among independents too, right? Let's keep everyone in this, right? So there's no, you know, no one sort of owns that category. So as a journal, I'm just interested in what I think is compelling and I really d- don't care. And I can see where if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, 
and you're coming at it from that bias, maybe you see those, you know, you see your own version of this uh, coming from journalists. But I, most journalists that I know who are professionals and do this for a living really just care about the story and don't care what, what letter is attached to it. Jessica, same question for you. How do you approach covering politicians and election events? Is there a misconception, maybe you think, that some people might have about how we handle coverage? Absolutely. I think, well, first of all, just preparing for election night, as Dean mentioned, it is months of studying. Like we have notes after notes, we trade notes, we quiz each other, we (laughs) talk about, you know, house districts, which we, you know, and seeing which ones we think are going to be, you know, a toss up, who's going to change, what's, what's going to be a great race. And so I love it. I honestly live for that. I love election night. I love trying to figure out races. I love looking at how campaigns are being run and who's going to win what and, and trying to figure that out. Unfortunately, it really, we have come to this place in our country where, you know, and I think national news really was a driving force behind it and and really taking a stand one way or the other. And so it really hurt local news. And and I hope people out there know that we are not, you know, we don't have a panel of of experts from one side of the aisle, you know, bashing the other. And, and we don't do that. We just, you know, my concern every night is making sure that we have both sides covered and if so, there's corruption, there's corruption and we're going to expose it. And we did it in, we did it in a Republican administration. We did it in a Democratic administration. You know, we went hard after Governor Richardson. We went hard after Governor Martinez. We exposed a lot of corruption and a lot of problems in both those administrations. And it doesn't matter what party you're affiliated to. And I hope that people at the end of the day see that. Like local news, we're not, you know, I think we have such slanted coverage on national level that we're the place where you can really find your local news coverage and that we are going to get both sides. I think there's a certain accountability at local news that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, you're going to be in the grocery store with these people, yeah. right? So <laughs> you, it's true. true. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these are people and you know, you live in the neighborhood, you live here. So I think I, I really feel accountable to the people who are viewers because we, you know, these are our neighbors. These are our friends. These are people that our kids go to school with, you know, with their parents. So I think if you're really looking for, the least amount of bias or the most sort of straight shooting and the most accountability. I think local news is one of the last bastions of that where, you know, if you work at a national network, you, you don't care. You're, you're broadcasting to the whole and, and, and at the end of the night, whether you're a Dem or a Republican, you go back to your country club, right? I mean, mm. like, I think at the network level, you do get some people who are insulated, whether they're conservatives or, or, or liberals who are, are just through wealth are sort of limited from their exposure to their audience. Yeah, that's a good point. Shifting topics one more time. I know we've all heard people say, oh, I can't watch the news because it's too depressing. Or they're also probably some of the same people who are emailing us about something that they saw on our channel. But there are a lot of good, great things about New Mexico. And I think, you know, obviously this is a place we all chose to live and work. And both of you are parents. Dean, what's your favorite thing about New Mexico? Oh, it's so hard. Gabby, that's such I a know. tough question. I, you know, I hike in the foothills probably three or four times a week. Grant Tosterud, by the way, our meteorologist, chief meteorologist, is also a is, it's all, hiker. Yeah, crazy hiker. Like he hikes probably three, 10 times as much as I do. So I love the outdoors. I really do. I love hiking. I love snowboarding here. I love just hanging out and going camping with friends. I mean, we have just the just a jewel of a, of a state in terms of the outdoor experiences. The other thing is I just think, you know, I grew up here and I just think, People, for the most part, really get along here. I mean, you have a real mix of cultures here. And I hate when people say, oh, multicultural. I mean, to me, it's just like, yeah, these are the people you grow up with. And I feel like there's a real just getting along of different cultures of people who have kind of come together over, you know, 
a long time and there's a sensibility about New Mexico. I, I feel like New Mexicans don't take themselves too seriously. I don't think there's a lot of, you know, people don't show off wealth here. I mean, there's a certain sensibility about that. You know, it's not Dallas where you've got to get made up to go to the grocery store. So, oh, yeah. so there's, a, I, I just, I, I'm not sure I, I can describe the culture, but I love the culture and I love the people here. Yeah. Shared experience for yeah. sure. Just how about yourself? Can you name a favorite thing or a place that you love? Absolutely. I, I just fell in love with this state. I run all the time in the Bosque, in the foothills. I'm an avid runner. So I, and, and like Sunday, I, I ran with a group of girlfriends. We run every Sunday. They're amazing. We, we get outdoors. And then I took my family to Santa Fe to skiing. And so yeah, I'm like, this is our backyard. We can go up to the mountains. And I just love being outdoors. And I told my girls, I'm like, hey, you know, we're so fortunate because this is like people's vacation. And this is an yeah. hour and a half drive from our house. Like you, you're able to go and hang out in the snow and play in the mountains. And just, I, I love all of New Mexico. You know, I grew up near Hobbs, New Mexico. My dad worked in the oil fields. So I grew up down there. So I, I have a special heart, a piece of my heart belongs to Southern New Mexico because I grew up 30 minutes from Hobbs, New Mexico. And I have family down there. And then Northern New Mexico, I have an, an aunt in Farmington and it's so charming. And there's, I love visiting up there as well. I love going to Taos. I love, it's just so unique and there's nothing like it. You're not going to find a Santa Fe or a Taos. And and Albuquerque, you know, we get all four seasons. The weather's amazing. And, and uh, I, I, so I spend a lot of time outdoors. I spend a lot of time right now. We're just, Dean and I both are, you know, we've got kids in sports and clubs. And, <laughs> we spend, <laughs> so we we spend a lot, lot of time, time driving. Driving. And yeah. so, yeah. and so, but I, it, that's been a really fun part of my life, like, you know, doing that stuff. That so. hit me how unique of an experience it is to be a kid in New Mexico when this year I had a balloon fiesta one of the balloon pilots came to my daughter's school and, you know, showed them like an up close, this is how a balloon works. And I just like literally had that moment where like, this is really cool that this happens for, yeah. you know, yeah. this is people's vacations. They come yes. here for balloon fiesta and, and we're just, it's in our backyard all the time. And so. it never loses the magic. I still go to my, my, my son is about to leave elementary school, but for the whole time he's been there, I've gone for a, you know, ABQ aloft yeah, yes. to watch yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Balloon yeah. It's yeah. so cool. Okay. So want to end, we're going to wrap up here quickly because I know you guys got a meeting to go to, but before you go, let's do just green. a rapid no, fire. Red. <laughs> no green. No green. Yeah. Red. Okay. <laughs> Dean's been on the podcast before, but Jessica, we'll start with you. Okay. First thing that comes to mind, favorite holiday activity? Oh, Illuminatias in Old Town. Favorite sports team? You're going to make me pick between United and Isotopes. <laughs> United. Okay. Okay. Peter Trevisani will be excited. Uh, best, <laughs> best ski resort in New Mexico. Oh man, I spend a lot of time in Santa Fe. Favorite New Mexico food. Oh man, a stuffed sopapilla. Okay, and red or green? <laughs> I always get Christmas because oh, I never can decide. Okay. I love both so much. Okay. <laughs> All right, Dean, your turn. Okay. Favorite place to hike in New Mexico. Oh, Wheeler Peak. I mean, I, I'm up in the Sandias all the time, but Wheeler is, that's, that's a wonderful valley, the Towski Valley. Okay. Towski Valley, Wheeler Peak area. have not been there myself. I don't get it up there much, beautiful. but yeah, yeah, just dramatic. Best restaurant in the state? Uh, I'm a Monroe's guy. Okay. I love the people. I love the family. Just great folks. Great food. Best New Mexico ski resort? I'm a big fan of Santa Fe. I think Santa Fe is so underrated. Taos has ridiculous terrain, right? For, and I'm not that great at skiers, so it doesn't matter to me, right? How, right? how amazing the runs are. So I'm a big, I'm a big uh, Santa Fe guy. Where you'd go on vacation if you could go any place in the world? Where I'd go on vacation? 
Is it a Disney cruise? Because <laughs> I, I went on one of those. I'm yeah. not a cruise Very guy. Very enjoyable. Yeah? No, All right, we'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> anyway, your answer. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the Bahamas. Bahamas. We did not go there on the Disney cruise, FYI. Um, and red or green? Green. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you both for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having oh, thank us. Thank you so much for having us. This was such a pleasure. Thanks again to our evening anchors. That is Dean Staley and Jessica Garate. You can catch them in the evenings on KRQE News 13 at 5.30 and at 10 p.m. And we will also put links to some of their reporting in our show notes once again. Yeah, and also as well, Gabby, 4 o'clock, you can see Dean and Jess swapping back and forth between 4 and 5.30. Yeah, uh, pretty much when they're feuding. Week. Yeah, when they're According feuding. According to Dean. That's right, in separate <laughs> rooms, folks. Um, yeah, hopefully this was illuminating in terms of just... A little bit more about how they think, what makes them proud to do the job that they do, and and just some of the background. Always interesting to get to know the people who are in your community covering the news that is important to the community and hopefully that you find important as well. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at chris.mckee at krqe.com and also at chrismckeetv on social media. I'm gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening.